July 23rd, 1968, marked the beginning of a new era which has affected all of us. Three members of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, the PFLP, boarded an El Al flight from Rome to Israel. There were 38 passengers and 10 crew. As the Boeing 707 took to the skies, the pilots ordered coffee. And when the flight attendant opened the cockpit door, the three militants pounced, hijacking the airplane with pistols and a grenade. They fired a warning shot inside the cockpit and ordered the pilots to fly to Algeria. On the ground there, the non-Israeli passengers were pulled off and sent to France. A few days later, 10 women and children were also released. The PFLP held on to 12 Israelis and 10 crew members for more than a month while the terrorists negotiated with Israel for the release of prisoners. After 40 days, the hostages were sent home safely in exchange for 16 Arab prisoners. Nothing would ever be the same. The Israeli journalist Ronan Bergman writes that the PFLP hijacking was a stunning assault from an organization that had been born just eight months earlier in Lebanon. Quote, in one swift blow, the PFLP had won a short-term tactical and strategic victory, demonstrating that it had the terrifying capacity to seize an Israeli civilian airliner and publicizing the Palestinian cause throughout the world. End quote. Israel was forced to negotiate with terrorists and agree to trade prisoners. Writes Bergman, quote, an indignity it had declared would never happen, end quote. The Palestinians had hit on a winning formula. Attacks inside Israel were hit and miss. An attack on a school bus might horrify Israelis, but it didn't resonate elsewhere in the world. But the ability to hijack an airplane anywhere in Europe with people from other countries on board? Now that was a spectacle drawing international headlines. As Ronan Bergman writes, quote, Now the whole wide world was the front line, with Jews, and especially Israelis, the targets. End quote. The day after Christmas in 1968, the PFLP struck again, this time in Athens, Greece. As an El Al jet prepared to take off, two terrorists, 19 and 25 years old, rushed onto the tarmac. One sprayed the plane with bullets, the other threw grenades. One Israeli was killed and several more injured in the panic. The two terrorists were captured, but only served a few months in prison, because the PFLP hijacked a Greek plane to demand their release, which worked yet again. But this time, Israel struck back with one of its most potent weapons, the Sayeret Matkal, the most elite special forces group, like the American Navy SEALs. On December 28th, Sayeret Matkal, backed by the Navy and Air Force, helicoptered into the international airport in Beirut, Lebanon. Their mission was to destroy as many Arab airliners as they could, while avoiding civilian casualties and damage to any non-Arab airlines. According to the historian Martin Gilbert, amongst the commandos was one of their newest members, a young 19-year-old operator named Benjamin Netanyahu. The squad swooped in around 9.15 p.m., dropping smoke grenades to conceal their movements and nails on the roads leading to the airport to block traffic. They fired warning shots at anyone who got too close. Working quickly, the commandos surrounded several airplanes, setting explosives next to the wheels and under the wings. 45 minutes later, all the commandos evacuated. There were no casualties on either side. 14 Arab planes were destroyed. Not for the first or last time, the United Nations, United States, and France all condemned Israel for its aggressive military action. 
promising consequences if Israel were to continue these kinds of reprisals. The United States argued that Lebanon had nothing to do with the PFLP hijacking, so shouldn't have been the target. But Israel pointed out that the Palestinian terrorist groups were all headquartered in Lebanon, and the government there refused to do anything about it. So consider this a warning. If Palestinian terrorists had found a new formula, so too had Israel. Retaliation against the terrorists meant fair game for anyone who supported them. Yehuda Avner, close advisor to several Israeli prime ministers, put it simply, quote, How does one treat with terrorists? Deal with them and you're done for. Don't and innocents die. End quote. This was the conundrum that would confront Israel and the West of the world up to this day. So we're finally moving beyond the immediate aftermath of the 1967 Six-Day War, getting into the late 1960s here. Today we've got the rise of Palestinian terrorism and a new Israeli prime minister tested by domestic issues at home and continuing Arab hostility abroad. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and this is Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. On February 26, 1969, Prime Minister Levi Eshkol died suddenly of a heart attack. It was a great shock to the country. For a while, his legacy was clouded by the aftermath of the Six-Day War, when his infamous indecisiveness led to a host of problems with the occupation and the resurgence of conflict with Israel's neighbors. But in recent years, he has been rehabilitated as much more decisive than he was given credit for. His strategic patience in the week before the war bought Israel crucial time to prepare and allowed the international community to exhaust the diplomatic options to preserve Israel's moral high ground. Yehuda Avner wrote, quote, Very many mourned Levi Eshkol with the deepest of reverence. For all his apparent prevarication, equivocation, and convoluted diplomacy on the eve of the Six-Day War, it was beginning to dawn on more and more people that his gritty patience, nimble instincts, and piercing shrewdness had ultimately convinced the world that Israel's very survival had been at stake, and that the Jewish state had done all it could to avoid that war. Hence the widespread moral backing Israel enjoyed, not least from the President of the United States, end quote. Politically now, Israel braced itself for a knuckle-down drag-out fight between the two leading leftists, Moshe Dayan and Yigal Alon, both military heroes with competing ideas about what to do with the territories. Moshe Dayan wanted an economic integration in which the Jews would be citizens of Israel and the Palestinians citizens of Jordan, Egal Alon had his famous Alon plan, which involved carving up the territories to preserve some areas for Jewish defense and settlement, and others getting returned to the Arabs. Moshe Dayan was immensely popular with the Israeli people, but hated by his colleagues for his egomania. Egal Alon was the preferred choice, but Dayan threatened to bolt the party if Alon was elevated. And at this point, Israel still had the unity government that Levi Eshkol had put in place just before the Six-Day War. That's a government in which both the left and its right-wing opposition worked together in coalition, a first for Israel. Despite the name, though, Israeli politics was as fractious as ever, 
as so many ministers from so many different political views could hardly agree on anything ever except that everything should be fought to the absolute hilt. So to avoid bad blood amongst their leading lights that would further split the coalition, the main left-wing party, called Mapai, went with an old Zionist stalwart who had served in government since the founding of the state, the 71-year-old Golda Meir. Golda Meir had been born in Kiev, Ukraine, and moved with her family to Milwaukee, Wisconsin at the age of five. She grew up in the United States, active in socialist causes and the burgeoning Zionist movement. She married at 19 years old, having secured her husband's promise that they would move to Palestine, which was then a British colony. And there she began moving up the ranks of the Zionist movement. She was a prolific fundraiser, defender of Jewish refugees, and an early secret intermediary with King Hussein of Jordan. She was one of only two women to sign Israel's Declaration of Independence. She had a long and distinguished career serving in important roles under Prime Ministers David Ben-Gurion and Levi Eshkol as Ambassador to the Soviet Union, Foreign Minister, Labor Minister. Her passion project had always been Israel's relations with Africa. Both people, she said, were trying to shake off colonial rule to learn how to live independently, develop their own economies, and successfully defend themselves. Israel devoted many resources to assisting African countries and hoped for their support in return. She could be stubborn, difficult, and terse, but she was also the classic workhorse of mainstream Zionist politics, a compromise candidate between the male egos of Yigal Alon and Moshe Dayan. The writer Eleanor Burkett credits Golda's, quote, aura of folksy motherliness and cold political skills, end quote. Eleanor Burkett writes that Golda Meir was, quote, strong, decisive, overbearing, and intolerant. She ran roughshod over her ministers and unified the government in short order, end quote. She quotes a government official saying that, quote, Golda told them all to shut up, so they shut up, end quote. In her memoirs, Golda wrote, quote, I've often been asked how I felt at that moment, and I wish that I had a poetic answer to the question. I know that tears rolled down my cheeks and that I held my head in my hands when the voting was over, but all that I recall about my feelings is that I was dazed. I had never planned to be prime minister. I had never planned any position. I only knew that now I would have to make decisions every day that would affect the lives of millions of people, and I think perhaps that is why I cried." End quote. She later had a typical Golda reflection on her historic moment. Quote, I became prime minister because that was how it was, in the same way that my milkman became an officer in command of an outpost on Mount Hermon. Neither of us had any particular relish for the job, but we both did it as well as we could. End quote. We can perhaps understand her sense of disillusionment mixed with weighty responsibility. Having reached the top spot, Israel's first female prime minister admitted that Israel wasn't quite the country of her idealistic dreams. In 
In an interview with the famous journalist Oriana Falachi, Falachi asked Golda Meir if this was the Israel she had dreamed of when she first moved to Palestine as a pioneer. Golda equivocated, but admitted that the country was far from her idealized vision. Her close aide, Yehuda Avner, quoted the Prime Minister's response. Quote, No, this is not the Israel I dreamed of. I naively thought that in a Jewish state there would not be all the evils that afflict other societies. Theft, murder, prostitution. It's something that breaks my heart. End quote. And yet, she said, the Israel she had was far better than the alternative. Quote, on the other hand, speaking as a Jewish socialist, Israel is more than I could have ever dreamed of, because the realization of Zionism is part of my socialism. Justice for the Jewish people has been the purpose of my life. Forty or fifty years ago, I had no hopes that we Jews would ever have a sovereign state to call our own. Now that we have one, it doesn't seem to me right to worry too much about its defects. We have a soil on which to put our feet, and that's already a lot. End quote. Eleanor Burkett writes that, quote, Golda gritted her teeth as she watched her old dreams unravel into the nitty-gritty hallmarks of a class society. Expensive shops and eateries, ostentatious homes, fancy clothes, and luxury cars, end quote. Burkett relates a story in which Golda is shocked by the cost of fish that she ate at a Jerusalem restaurant. Quote, they've got some chutzpah. It was just a piece of fish, end quote. Good thing she never ordered a bagel in the Bay Area. She would have fallen right over. The socialist in her worried about the changing landscape of the kibbutzim, which on the one hand supplied the elite of Israeli society. She, after all, lived in a kibbutz when she first came to Palestine. But now, writes Burkett, quote, the zeal for self-sacrifice was supplanted by modern self-indulgence, end quote. Israelis were becoming less enamored of the collectivist lifestyle of hard work in the fields and more accustomed to the conveniences of the big city and the flood of cheap Arab labor coming into the country with the absorption of the West Bank. And yet, there was something comforting for Israelis about having this old Zionist at the helm. Burkett writes that, quote, Her modesty allowed Israelis to indulge their illusions about their own fading idealism, end quote. Despite her domineering attitude, she sneered at the formalities of her office, frequently eating with her maid and driver, and despite how much she hated having bodyguards, bringing them cake and coffee. She insisted on being woken up whenever reports came in that an Israeli soldier was killed, and her office was an open door for the parents of the fallen. Eleanor Burkett relates a story about visiting American Senator Frank Church, finding Golda cooking him breakfast in the kitchen. When he asked if he could help her with something, she said, yes, fighter jets, missiles, and Russian jewelry. Despite the upheavals in Israeli society, she remained steadfast in her commitment to her Zionist socialist roots, which was both endearing and, as we'll see in later episodes, not flexible enough to address social changes. Still, politically, Golda was in a good position as the 1969 elections approached. This was the first election after the Six-Day War, and also the first in which Israel's political battle lines centered around the territories. Between the Hawks, those who were aligned with the movement to keep the land, and the Doves, those who advocated returning some or all of the territories in exchange for peace. Hawks and doves, increasingly but not exclusively right and left, a dynamic that would define Israel's politics for decades, the way that, say, abortion rights and the culture war define the United States is. In 1969, Golda Meir's left-wing party, called The Alignment, 
won 56 seats, a record that still stands today. You need 61 seats for a majority. Golda joined with her fiercest opponent on the right, Menachem Begin, to form a unity government that held 102 out of the 120 Knesset seats. This Knesset was the most diverse in Israel's history, with the religious right, secular left, the centrists, even a few Israeli Arabs. The Israeli journalist Gershom Gorenberg writes that the alignment, quote, completed the process of creating a ruling party that stood for every possible policy and no policy on the country's most fateful issue, the future of the territories, end quote. When Golda had first come into the prime minister's office, only 3% of Israelis supported her selection. Now, in an actual election, almost 85% of the country thought highly of her. She would spend the next few years dramatically whittling away that popularity. The domestic scene wasn't the only thing going on. Upon her arrival at the Prime Minister's office in March of 1969, Golda Meir inherited the rise in Palestinian terrorism, characterized by the airplane hijackings and Israeli responses. Things will only get worse, as we'll see in coming episodes. And then there was the war of attrition between Israel and Egypt over the Sinai Peninsula. Since the 67 war, Israel and Egypt had stared at each other across the Suez Canal, in some places just a thousand feet apart. Since the end of the war, the two had been trading fire over and around the canal. It was part of a larger Egyptian strategy to build its military with the help of the Soviet Union's latest weapons. Golda Meir wrote that the Soviets armed Egypt in the hope that the incessant fighting and loss of Israeli life would break Israel's spirit, creating a situation so intolerable that Israel would give up the Sinai without achieving peace. And indeed, the steady drumbeat of dead Israeli soldiers had a maddening effect on the prime minister and the country. But on March 8, 1969, just before Golda took office, things escalated. President Nasser of Egypt made official his break with the post-1967 ceasefire. He launched a massive attack on Israeli forces along the canal. He declared, quote, what was lost in war must be restored by war, end quote. Israel responded with its own counterattack. That spring saw nearly 50 Israeli soldiers killed, and over the rest of the year there would be hundreds dead on both sides. Back and forth, month after month, Egyptian artillery fire returned with Israeli airstrikes, daring commando raids and tank battles across the narrow waterway. But Israel didn't have a clear solution. They weren't in a position to launch a full-scale war like in 67. And even if they did, what would they do? Occupy Cairo? The Soviets were installing the latest in anti-aircraft missile systems that posed a huge threat to the Israeli Air Force, limiting its ability to strike. And the Soviets had tens of thousands of their own troops in Egypt, delivering, training, and manning the latest weaponry. Israel worried that hitting them too hard would invite open warfare with the Soviet Union, this was not the kind of war that Israel was used to, one that grinds on and on without the military being able to see a way through to an end. There was also a bigger piece to all this. The active involvement of the Soviets had turned the war of attrition into an international Cold War front between the USSR and the United States, although it didn't receive the kind of global attention that the Six-Day War had. The two superpowers piled into the diplomatic efforts to negotiate an end to the conflict, 
the United States also promised to supply Israel with weapons to counteract the Soviets arming Egypt. But President Richard Nixon wanted to improve the United States' influence in the rest of the Middle East, including with Egypt and Syria, and so the arms were slow in coming, much to Golda Meir's frustration. At the same time, the United States was doing a lot of negotiating with the Soviets and the Egyptians behind Israel's back, basically trying to get their ducks in a row to later impose a solution on Israel. This was likewise not appreciated. Golda Meir deeply resented efforts to tell Israel what to do about its security. That perspective has been a mainstay of Israeli attitudes ever since. The Nixon administration further inflamed Golda when the Secretary of State, William Rogers, floated a peace plan that, again, had not been previously discussed with Israel. In essence, it offered a variation of the land for peace formula, in which Israel would give up the Sinai Peninsula, Egypt and Israel would maintain peace, and the details would be negotiated directly between them. Israel rejected it for being too one-sided in favor of the Arabs. The Egyptians and the Soviets rejected it for being too favorable to Israel. And anyway, Egypt still adhered to the three no's of the Khartoum Resolution. No peace, no recognition, no negotiation. President Nasser refused to negotiate directly with Israel and wouldn't agree to anything until Israel left all the territories it had captured, not just the Sinai. For her part, Golda refused a situation in which Israel would have to first give up territory and only then see whether the Arabs were willing to deal. The territories were Israel's single bargaining chip with the Arabs, and she wasn't going to toss it away. So the Rogers Plan, as it was called, was rejected outright. It would come back. In the meantime, we have these conflicting approaches that made it impossible for Israel and the Arab states to even begin negotiations, let alone make progress, let alone make a deal. Even where hints and suggestions seemed to hold promise, the Soviet Union would shut them down, not wanting Egypt to let go of its desire to seize back the Sinai with military force without having to give Israel a single thing. And so the war of attrition dragged on. In this state of impasse in the late 1960s, Israel had no choice but to hang on to the captured territories. And that suited some people just fine. Those who were engaged in the settlement project that was proceeding slowly but surely. So we've discussed the first two settlements, the left-wing secular socialist kibbutz Merom Golan up in the Golan Heights, and the religious Zionist settlement Kafar Zion at the edge of the West Bank. In the midst of everything else going on, the religious Zionists created another settlement, but this time not in the rural hinterlands, but in the heart of a major Arab city, Hebron, near Judaism's second holiest site. That's what we're looking at next time. Don't forget that you can book Jew Ought to Know to come to your local community, whether Zoom or in person, presentation style or group text study. We can explore a variety of Jewish and Israeli history topics together. Find out more at jewidontknow.com slash teaching and hit me up at jewidontknowpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. Lahitra Oates. See you later.